0: Hashtag
1: never alone with Joe and Mark. Um, Hi everyone and welcome to hashtag never alone episode 11. I'm your host Joe Ambridge. I'm here with um, psychotherapist and my co-host Mark Fielding. Hi Mark. Uh, hi Joe. Um, and today's episode is about suicide. I just want to warn people ahead of time, like before you start listening to this episode, it will be uh, quite a sensitive subject for a lot of people so um if you want to go ahead and listen make sure that you do talk to someone afterwards if it does affect you um as we mentioned at the end of this episode um but today we are talking about suicide um just some of the st- statistics from suicide nine australians die every day by suicide that's more than double the road dial um and 75 percent of those that take their own life are male um and this is quite a daunting statistic as well over 65,000 Australians make a suicide attempt each year and um, these statistics come from lifeline.org.au if you want to go and check them out um, they, and also if you want to talk to anyone if your life is in danger you can speak to them or call triple zero um, but yeah, suicide very sensitive topic and a very serious issue um, Someone as someone that's I contemplated it on two occasions, one a couple of years ago and I ended up in a mental health clinic. I contemplated overdosing, if it hadn't been for my sister-in-law, I probably wouldn't be here right now. So I'm highly grateful to her and the people around me that supported me on covering from that situation. Um, And the first one was a couple of years ago due to, well, many years ago now due to bullying in high school, which is a topic we will cover uh, in a few episodes time. Um, I really do want to cover that because it is a big issue. Um, Also, we were supposed to record an episode last week about men and mental health, but um, my guest... (laughs) Unfortunately, forgot that it was supposed to be recorded, so we didn't get around to doing that. We will get around to recording that again at a LA later date. Anyway, yeah. So I want to introduce our guest today, who is Daryl Green, who's going to share his story about suicide. Um, hi, Daryl. Thank you for joining us.
2: Hi, Jerry. Hi, Mark. It's great to be here.
1: Uh, just tell us a little bit about your story, yeah.
2: Oh. I left high school and I never entered any well, – did not get into any of the university courses I was interested in. 1991. I thought about, you know, the Australian Army. I, I like maintaining my fitness, but they weren't active at that time. I thought, well, I don't want to dig ditches in the middle of the Australian um, bush. And one morning at the kitchen table, my uh, dear late mother, Eileen, she said, darling, why don't you join the police? I thought – What I um, learn, I get to apply and I get to help people. And uh, I ended up joining the police. As any police officer, you know, you see a lot of things that the rest of the community will not see, including suicide, self harm, attempts. But I have had it and was involved in a very serious uh, incident on the 1st of May, 2000. Would, what would you like to hear about that incident?
1: Um, just go. Uh, just tell us as much as you uh, want to tell us. Um, there's some some bits you don't want to share. That's okay. So Suicide uh, no, what your issue was.
2: I speak openly and professionally uh, on this, and uh, and now um, in 2018 was announced as a Lifeline ambassador. So. Uh, so I didn't know much about um, you know, mental health or suicide, other than the, tr- the training uh, in, in the um, in the police. And uh, but I'd been to uh, um, quite quite a few uh, suicides, and I heard some comments of people saying, Are they this week." Me, I wasn't quite uh, sure, but I do remember one of them was it was a, a horrific uh, suicide um, because of the man used a powerful. Uh, a shotgun uh, to end his life and that was in relation to not having access to his children and uh, I thought this was quite extreme but I later on got a little bit of understanding and so I was 27, I'm on night work, we get a routine job, 3.06am in the morning to uh, attend a death threats, words spoken six hours earlier. The tennis job in the early hours of the morning, and it was part from a perfect situation because it was in a cul de sac. So, the, the, the suspect we had to drive past their place. We had to do our initial investigation, it's in the early hours in the morning. If you're going to execute a search warrant, you know, you're going to do it in the you know, first thing, daylight, overwhelming numbers. so, um, we never had that choice. So, we um, questioned the informant, we questioned the complainant about and we're working there and and see if we were going to execute a search immediately uh, of this person's uh, house who made the death threats and allegedly had an illegal firearm or did we not think the credibility was satisfactory and we might have to put that evidence toward justice the peace for a search we've moved back to the patrol car the sergeant is in the front seat he's on his mobile phone he's doing back down checks for police communications on the suspect. My partner, she opens up the front passenger seat, sits down, and she starts doing background checks on the two males who had called us to the address. This is 3.50am in the morning, and I open the rear passenger door of the patrol vehicle. I sit in the back, and I slide across I'm in the middle of the back seat, and I'm listening to the information that's coming in. And we're only going to be here a really short period of time. So I actually leave my car door open. I'm sat in this car less than 60 seconds, and then I hear this pat, pat, pat sound from coming outside for the left-hand side of the vehicle where the open door is. And it just flashed through my mind, what could this be? The only thing that made sense was, oh, this must be some neighbourhood dog that's running up to the patrol car. I nonchalantly turn and look out the door. But I can't see anything. The interior light's on of the vehicle. I have no night vision. And, and as soon as I'm looking out the door, in a split second, my head goes from looking out the door to being forced prone over um, on my the right-hand side of the back seat. My hands are around my mouth, there's blood, there's teeth. These bones. What has occurred is that tap, tap, tap was the suspect. Now i about running up to the patrol vehicle. He's uh, shot me in the face. He's shot me in the arm. Didn't even feel that. I sit up and I see that my sergeant seat is empty. His door is open. My partner was splattered with blood. And I didn't know she was alive or dead I'm suffering audio exclusion, So I can't hear anything on the radio I can't hear her calls I draw my phone up and I yell get help and I go out through the door that I got shot free And commence searching for And attempted to find. So. The next part of it Is that couldn't find the gunman I didn't know where my sergeant was, and I don't know the state of my partner. And so I had to make some decisions uh, very quickly. And I decided that I'm going to attempt to locate the sergeant, fearing he may be mortally wounded in the street. I walked in the street yelling out his names. Uh, this was actually all recorded on audio. And I, on the audio, I've called out his name eight times can't find a sergeant, so I moved back to the patrol vehicle. But people are starting to come out to the house, and so I um, direct them to you know get back in your house. You Not know, Some of my finest you know, client service skills are on display this particular night, but I've got a bullet in my head and one in my shoulder, so uh, <laughs> I think I can be forgiven for being a little bit direct. And I come back to the patrol car, and I didn't know what I would find. And my partner says, green one hurt greenium i Music to my ears. She was alive. I rested on the patrol vehicle with my right forearm um, holding my firearm, and holding my uh, the left of my face With my left hand, trying to staunch the flow of blood. And, I'm, and I look through the windshield at my partner, and I say, "It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right." And years later, at this important time, she's thinking, "Got a gunman on the loose." Our sergeant is missing, and you're pouring blood from your mouth all over the bonnet of the police vehicle. Daryl, you're not very reassuring. Then the bravest man, uh, Brett Price, working on his own, pulled up to the scene. I met him in the middle of the street, and we moved back over to the patrol car where Sharnell was, and by this time I was highly disoriented because of the amount of blood that I'd lost, and... Um, it got down on the ground and he um, questioned me about the offender, and I said, "Look, don't don't know where he is. Where's the sergeant? We've got to find him." Still very concerned. And more backup arrived. An ambulance arrived. They took away my uh, partner. After a delay, the second ambulance was asking for a corridor of safety, which wasn't possible to provide, but they eventually drove up to the, to the scene. And I was in an extreme amount of pain by this time. They collected me, drove to a house where the sergeant, he um, was able to exit the vehicle, look over. He saw a fair-headed person. I'm fair-headed. The offender was fair-headed. So he couldn't afford to take the shot, as he said to me. If I shot him, I'd be a hero. If I shot you, I'd be a villain. So he was in a pretty um, uh, tough uh, place. And he thought that we were actually uh, being sniped at from afar. So he's ran across the street, come to a six-foot chainmail fence, shows what you can do under adrenaline. He's throwing his firearm over the top of it, put both hands on top, somersaulted over, picked up his firearm, made his way to the next street over, saw a house with a light on, banged on the door, and he shouted out, the police, I've been shot, let me in. And the homeowner at the time had thought, oh, this sounds like a furphy, but he looks through the peephole, he sees a bloke in uh, blue, covered in red, and lets him in, and Chris is able to get on to police communications, call for backup, and miraculously, 10 rounds in this fusillade of gunfire, um, hitting all of us, me twice, Chanel six times, the sergeant twice. We all lived. After a three-week manhunt when the city of Brisbane was just literally on edge for this crazed gunman, his body was found two kilometres away from where he'd attacked us. The rifle he shot us with, he'd used to take his own life. Wow. Jeez. I mean,
1: what a...
0: Goodness me. I mean, I... What a a story. I mean, I've watched the film. I I wanted to link in the film, Daryl, just just briefly, because I watched the film. You've made a film about this, haven't you?
2: Yes, there's a a six-minute video that was made uh, about 17 years after the event and was actually launched Mm. by Lifeline, which is dedicated to suicide prevention and and tells a a small component of my my story. But uh, feedback is it's pretty compelling and Lifeline –
0: uh, very powerful it's a really powerful yeah I, I, i've watched yeah. it a few times it's incredibly powerful i mean thank you so much for, for sharing all of that there my oh, goodness okay. me you know i am lost the words really
2: that's um my um pleasure that's actually the breached uh version and uh uh, probably when I I speak professionally on it, I actually role play the shooting taking place and depending on the audience and most of them like to hear it, I then play the audio of the shooting taking place and it's um, it's it's chilling. For me, it's no problem. I'm desensitised to it now but um, it's... I didn't know I was being recorded and I use language in this recording that I normally do, not use in polite conversation but uh as a dear lady friend said to me, because I, I dropped the F bomb and I also dropped the C bomb, she said, Daryl, if there was ever a time to use the C word, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. And and I guess some,
0: you know, even though you were, you know, really terribly injured, so much focus on your partner and just making sure other people were okay.
2: Well, the adrenaline kicked in and it was just me and I had some to make some decisions on, on the go I literally do i attend to my partner or do i search for the sergeant and uh, so i decided well I'll see if i can locate the sergeant I can't locate him so then i'll well, turn to my partner and then could i you know, we weren't equipped with any um meaningful um we now take tactical first aid kits and but we didn't at the time there say so fornicates, um, you know, chest seals, and, and other items yeah. to do match casualty events. We never had any of that, but also I needed to keep an, an eye out for the offender. So yeah. I, 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 I placed that as my priority. Like she's, she's alive, she's breathing. If I can, if those words could, you know, possibly keep her calm, and 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 how could you sort of remain calm in that circumstances? Yeah. She, um, because that was just trying to, to remain calm and lessen to the heart rate, that listens to the blood that you were losing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I remember it like uh, yesterday. Um, and, but I, as my father, who's actually here um, uh, to, today as I'm talking, he says it was about 10 years till I really started to get on top of the shooting. And get my life back on track. So, get my life as a career, get my personal life, and get my mental health back on track. Very long
0: term. I mean, what, what, I mean, this is, you know, a massive question, Adam, but I mean, what what, what was the journey? I know you're in the film and, you talked about the desensitisation kind of therapy, and that was part of it. But could you maybe just tell us something about about the healing? You know, just it's a bit a long period, ten years, I know. But just just anything you think our listeners can really benefit from. Maybe some of the low points that you had
2: and what got you through. Okay, um, initially I was just stunned in days after the first month. I really was. I was just, you know, I wasn't suffering um, any of the. Uh, Symptoms that I, that I would uh, later and some which I still carry with me. But there was an, an event. So, seven weeks after we were shot, there was a senior constable in the he had been a domestic violence incident. He was shot once in the leg, it severed his femoral artery. If you don't receive immediately help, you bleed out from that type of injury. Um. Help did not arrive for this officer, senior constable, more, and more. He bled out. And he, What was going through my mind then was, especially in in the background, because I I couldn't put it all together until it was literally he's been shot once and died, Chris and I were shot, and we live, yeah. And and that started damage, anxiety, depression, um, hyper arousal, dysfunction, a whole host of um. Nah, mental health issues um, in the full swing. Um, what helped uh, me was a conversation I had a couple of months with another officer who was on patrol. He'd been involved in the pursuit and ended up having to uh, follow And I just turned to him and said, hey, Brad, shouldn't have been involved with um, What's uh, going on in that matter? And uh, the, the person um, there was, there was nobody killed in this particular event. But there was obviously a criminal investigation, an internal investigation. Yeah. He arrived in a row and he said, hey, you know, mate, I'm stressed, I'm angry, I'm taken down the family, <laughs> an internal investigation. I said, mate, I'm so stressed. I'm seeing a psychic. So he's opened up. He's actually reached down to a psychiatrist. And this gave me the code to um, ask for help. And so that was the first step seeking the help of a psychiatrist. Yeah. And what really helped me was not only seeing a mental health professional, such as a psychiatrist, I and mean, he was very experienced and he counseled people involved in conflicts, people involved in of the Balkans in the early 1990s. But he told me that, Daryl, you know, a soldier going into battle, he has time to mentally prepare. You know, you know and he can somewhat, he can prepare himself as much as he can mentally for what is about to confront. You know, being shot at, shooting back, and what he might see. You had no time to mentally prepare. It's like me talking to you now. Somebody's come up with a fire. On the so the only thing that works from a psychological um, point of view could be the likes of seeing your uh, family executed in front of you. Yeah. So that was a wake-up call that was significant, not only, the, you know, the surgeries and the reconstruction for seven years, so over 17 surgical procedures. That was the, the physical side of it. The mental side of it was even uh, bigger. But what really helped was within the police. And, and I thought, oh, he's an expert, uh, but we had a, a police psychologist and it, t- it turns out that he uh, was a Vietnam veteran. And I sometimes tell his story and I've been very fortunate to have him in the audience and he shared some photographs with me. And he was in Vietnam, he was in the infantry, he was uh, his point man, and moving through the bush with his my the M16 and our strong hand in front of him was a wire. He, he, he hasn't seen it, the lights pushed up against it. That was uh, attached to a grenade in a tin can. Grenade the grenades formed the spoon of the grenade and went wide. He's um, continued walking, it exploded behind him and it took out a huge arm of his uh, knife, both his legs, and it sh- shrapneled sh- 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 his back. He nearly, um, he was uh, transmitted back there, transported to Brother the surgeon said to him, "Chris, your leg. If it, it doesn't start to heal, you to it. Fortunately, his leg did heal and they were able to save it. He sold on in the army. And so, um, so I was introduced to him and he said to me, Mate, so from my experience in the Army, you know, we back, we did three more years. I was in various training um, uh, units at the time, but I just was you know, sick of all my problems. And so I left behind, I burned my photographs I burned my way uh, I just wanted to leave all behind me, behind me. And yeah. the only thing I couldn't leave behind was I my problems and said, mate, I've been I've, been, I've, been, I've been done in my and i uh, willing to end my thing. But it doesn't have to be So um, that was very powerful to have somebody who'd been through a very similar experience, had uh, those similar PTSD, and come yeah. through the other side. So that was a huge help um, to not only having a psychiatrist, but also another psychologist who's been on that. And so I would try in that say this and talks if you've got somebody who's gone through a divorce reach out to somebody who's gone through a divorce out that other side
0: yeah i mean the, the the reaching out and yeah i mean the reaching out and kind of sharing your experience which which i, I guess you continue to do they'll really you know in, in many ways you know is really helpful for people and this is a bit of a jump and we are not not to something we're going to explore maybe massively, but, I mean, there's something about men as well. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, what Joe said initially around the statistics around men and suicide. And I don't know, do you think there is something still around, you know, men struggling, you know, even after they've been some, through something as, you know, totally traumatic as you? Is there something around men finding it difficult to, to open up about their feelings and their vulnerabilities? And, I mean, how, how do you see it?
2: I see, unfortunately, there's still that focus on the man has to be strong, he has to handle whatever comes up in his life, and if he can't, he's not a real man. And yeah. this was certainly some of the opinions that people have about me, uh, I was looking to buy a house into the house market when the, the shooting took place. I had uh, 12 months unpaid leave. I'd, I'd come back. I was about there uh, for 13 months. I'm saving up for my first time. The shooting takes place. And then, fortunately, I was at Mum and Dad's and they were able to uh, nurture me through all the, the, the surgeries. But it was unfortunately, um, it was an undertaking of. Uh, um, this was me um, and anyone, anyone that oh, you, you're not a real man, you live at home with dad. Here you are in your early 30s, not standing on your own. 30s. Well, at this particular time, I'm actually going to secondary construction, still being treated regularly on medication by a psychiatrist, and I'm studying a master's degree part time. My plate was pretty full, people just made a stack judgment, and that really pushed me down. People were too afraid to speak about the shooting and made this 800-pound um, gorilla in, in the in the room. And, yeah. and so my thoughts of, of suicide was when I went through the first reconstruction of my mouth, so the, the bullet. You know, on my website there's actually a reconstruction says the bullet hit yeah. in my mouth and what it did. It smashed the uh, top left maxilla bone. Three teeth, he flicked it down, smashed them in the two teeth, ended my tongue and lodged in the throat. And so there was a lot of time for them to replace. So this surgery went through and it was horrific. Anybody knows any dental, had any dental work? It's it's not a nice and dental time. So at the um, coming towards the end of 2003, The reconstruction has been completed by a team of specialists headed up by the MacDow Facial Surgeon. And then I've sent to another MacDow Facial Surgeon, Dr John Arvia, here in Brisbane. And his job is to inspect the reconstruction and write a report to WorkCover, the state government insurer, about the success of the surgery. In my lunch hour, I popped down from police headquarters to his rooms in uh, Queen Street, Brisbane for a five-minute consultation. I lie in his chair, he pokes around my mouth with his instruments, and he didn't show any emotions on his face, he was very quiet. And I now know that he was thinking how to try and express something to me. I said, Daryl, come into my office, take a seat. Daryl, you were just sat in my chair. What you have in your mouth, I cannot clean in my instruments. There's no way you can clean. It. You're at risk of septicemia, lung borne disease, very dangerous. I'm sorry, but your reconstruction has failed. This hit me like a freight train. I've been through yeah. cold to try and get back, because I wanted to get back to the, to the old Daryl Elliott Green as much as possible. Yeah. Part of that was my teeth. Other people, and I had these comments, I was, why don't you just get a plate? Well, you no, know, I want my teeth. I want it as natural as possible. Yeah. And and so I, I never even had a solution for me. And, but they did come up with a solution, made a model, model in my mouth, and it was actually to cut out a chunk of bone from three titanium implants, rotate the chunk of bone, take a uh, another um, piece of bone from my lower jaw and, and insert it uh, above, and get these three pieces of titanium vertical. Then they put a plate in my mouth, and for three months, they would allow this to feel, and uh, with the plate in my mouth, once again, I couldn't eat solid food Three months. This is what I was facing, and I could see no light at the end of the, of the tunnel. I lived at home with my mum and dad. There there's it no police career for me. It had some kind of negative, uh, you know, comments from come from, from a little bit of um, ignorance, I, I would say, or lack of uh, you know, understanding. And mm. It was like the second anniversary of the shooting. Um, we, we all got together for a beer at stake and celebrate being alive. The next day, I called into work sick. The following day, my supervisor walks up to me and says, mm, there's no better reason for getting on the piss for you guys went through, but you should have changed the following day from a day shift to an afternoon shift so you're fit to come to work. His assumption was, I've had too much to drink and I've too hungover to come to work. Not the case at all. The shooting's only two years old. In terms of trauma, it was incredibly fresh. When I've gone home that night and the conversations I've had, stories, find out other information from people who had been involved. When I've gone to bed, it was like it was an electric storm running through my head. Couldn't sleep, took sleeping medication this morning, took comatose to uh, go to work, let alone be on duty in charge of firearms. Yeah. So they've broken the news. This is My reconstruction's failed. I've, no career to me. I've just hit a new low point, you know, deep depression, anxiety. Um, exercise played a big part, particularly running, to help manage um, my, my stress, to you know, burn off the anxiety yeah. and the fears. I'm out running, and I cross a bridge. I stop, I put both hands on the railing, and I look over, and I think, I can jump, and we'll all be over. Yeah. But, I was very fortunate because I'd been a police officer and was a police officer, and, and I continued on for um, 20 years after the shooting in, in the police. Uh, and I knew the effect of suicide on family and friends, and I knew the feelings that I would think that I could see no light at the end of the tunnel. There is There is no you know, joy or happiness or anything that I can see to look forward to. I just wanted to all the suffering to end. But I knew if I did that, I was just going to transfer my pain, my suffering, my problems onto my family members and leave them in changed forever. And I simply said to myself, no, I can't do that to mum and dad. I stood, I turned and I continued running. And I'm very grateful for being a police officer and exposed to that to help me make that decision to just keep on going. And one of the mantras I talk about if You don't know what to do Keep on going Because just by the law of averages Eventually you've got to get enough swing
0: Yeah but, but that was a, a really i that, you know, This is an understatement But a massive moment Really and, you know, it shows the depth of despair and completely understandable from what you said, you know, that you were in when you looked over that bridge. And I think that is often the feeling, isn't it? I mean, people come to suicidal ideation from all all different, you know, there's all different reasons for it, internal, external events, trauma. But often there is that moment, isn't there, when there's a feeling that I'm suffering so much, I just can't take any more. And I guess that's where you were on that bridge, Darrell, from what you say.
2: Exactly, I just wanted it to end. I just wanted the pain, the anguish, all the anxieties, uh, to just to go away. It was, it, it was just overwhelming, and, and it literally was you know what? I, I, I feel and I still can, I can put up with a certain amount of pain, but when you don't have hope, that is, um, where you can't see that light. And no, I no, use that word hope, you can't see a hope, you can't see a better future. But that's we think, well. Um, it, it, I might be better, or I think that I won't be in pain if I'm not on this earth. And uh, but the people around you, there's always somebody who, who will care, or there'll be the ripple effect from the uh, emergency services workers who have to, you know, turn up and attend uh, to the scene, and you know, the the coroner has to investigate the death. So it's it's. Um, it affects so many people and so there's, there's always somebody who cares and for those people who feel like there's nobody to care pick up the phone keep the lifeline you'll find trained counselors who um, who care because they just volunteer their time
1: yeah as we say with a, a lot in a lot of our episodes there is and obviously the title of the podcast is hashtag now alone there's always someone to talk to even if it seems like you're on your own which I've been in that position. It feels like there's no quick, easy fixing because there's no quick, easy fix. The only way out is to end your life with sometimes, obviously, as you said, in, in your professional position, you thought about the uh, after effects of if you had gone through with it. Um, um, whereas there's like, obviously, some people who maybe didn't, don't think about the after effects. Um, and that's obviously where where they end up in that position where they want to end their life and don't think about how it might affect the people around them once they're gone.
2: Exactly. It's huge. And there's so much singer about, you know, suicide. that you know, Those st- stats, as you said, are just incredibly disturbing, but I still find it's a very taboo subject. And so, you uh, People just speaking out, you know, just letting them know that, hey, you know, you're not alone. Somebody's been through it. Somebody's come out the other side. And by the way, it's not just you that you'd be, you know, affecting. And if anything, I would say you actually multiply the pain uh, rather than in your own pain. And most people, I find, are good by nature, and they don't want to do that. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just taken that step to be it. Pick up the phone to Lifeline you know, to reaching out. And I had a relationship breakup a number of years ago and I felt horrific. It was via a text message. I had overwhelming um, uh, feelings of I don't want to live because this was somebody that I could see me spending the rest of my life with, having a family. And a friend of mine had been through divorce. I picked up the phone and said, would you come over? Uh, this is what's occurred, and he'd been through a, uh, a divorce and um, had a child. And was a, a great support and got me through, you know, that that night, and uh, and yeah. So it might not be reaching out to a professional; it might just be a friend who, you know, that company, or you know, somebody you know who been been through. It. So I knew that I had no way that I'd been through the relationship. Um, uh, issues that he had. And, uh, yeah, very fortunate, picked up that fight.
1: Yeah, for me, I kind of it was my head kind of just went numb and like I couldn't feel anything, and I just wanted that to end. And I think I obviously did the right thing by reaching out to my sister-in-law. Um, I mean, I ended up in a mental health clinic for three nights, and I think that kind of did me the world of good. It gave me a few days to kind of sit and think about what. Would would have happened if i had gone through with it and if i um like kind of speak to a psychologist about getting better and the reason why i'd gone to that point of where of no, retur- no return was because i'd moved countries and i was on medication and I'd, I'd gone through a breakdown like the year before and i think my medication wasn't working, so I wasn't handling my feet. I wasn't handling like the feelings, and I was unaware that that's why I couldn't express how I was feeling. And there was a lot yeah. of change in a different country where I barely knew anyone apart from my partner and partner's family. So, obviously, that was just like one tiny little thing that kind of pushed me over the edge, and I just, my head went numb. And obviously, so the, my first thought was suicide and seeing my sister-in-law break down and cry in front of me, kind of what pushed me to go and get help and sort, see the severity of it all. Yes,
2: yeah, that's... Yeah, it that was a, a wake-up call Seeing, oh, this is how I'm affecting my sister-in-law. Okay, well, what can I yeah. do? What positive action can I, can
1: I take? And even seeing how how upset my father in law was. Well, he's not one for emotions, but seeing how worried he was about me, I kind of saw how much it would had affected someone. And even though I hadn't gone through with it, it affected people that I was in that position where I felt like that. That everyone was worried. It made me realise, hang on, if I'd gone through it, how much worse it would have been for everyone else. (laughs) And I kinda I'm kinda lucky I'm in a better position now where especially with the podcast that I know I can talk to people about it and they won't look at me differently. And I feel like obviously there's some people that maybe might feel that, especially as a man, which is like something I want to bring up in the future episode we'll talk about men and mental health again and something we mentioned in our first episode that was on audio that men do feel like they can't talk to someone about it because they might look at them differently or think of them less as a man. And as one of my friends mentioned in... My film that I shot about anxiety. A lot of people say "man up," and they probably don't realise how much of a, a effect it might have on the person.
2: Yes, yeah, yes, absolutely. Uh, those uh, words just do uh, so much harm because it's not about man and up. And yeah, you know, all of us will experience things in life, and you will be highs and your low points, yeah. and some of them be lower than others, and. Uh, and just turn around and say, somebody, you know, toughen, toughen up. And there's still a lot of that attitude around. And, and a, a, a friend of mine, I, I took a long time until I returned to uh, work. I was off work for 20 months going through this reconstruction period and a lot of people never saw, saw me. And I certainly didn't see the post-operative um, Daryl with my face all swollen and you know, blood dribbling from my nose, you know, that described. Uh, the there's one horrific uh, photograph that I uh, that I um, I show what had occurred is one of the operations still and still to this day like when I go and get a haircut at the end of the haircut the lady takes a cutthroat razor and just to trim the hair at the back of my neck and I actually um, it's like I'm on white knuckle airlines I actually grip the seat because I um, it just brings back such and uh, uh, one of the most horrific pieces of surgery I went through. Um, And it reminds me of a scalpel. Uh, What had occurred was uh, one of the the second major operations I had, I had a a bone graft initially, and then I was eating with a plate and a soft food, and about three months, I couldn't move on to the next procedure. And the surgeon sliced into the roof of my mouth, cut out a 20 cents size piece of skin, placed it over the bone graft, and when I went from the surgery, the uh, doctor said, uh, Daryl, can't stop the wound in the top of your mouth from bleeding. Do not worry. Go home. Um, use this uh, door to cut up the blood. It will stop bleeding and heal itself in time. Mum and dad took me home, and I was in horrific pain. And even running my tongue over the roof of my mouth now still sends shivers down my spine. And I had strong painkillers, but I couldn't get to sleep with the pain I was in, so I took a heavy dose of sleeping tablets to knock myself out. The surgeon gave me gauze to place in my mouth to, to soak up the blood. So the sleeping tablets have knocked me out. I have the gauze in my mouth, and I'm sleeping. The wound bleeds. The gauze soaks up the blood. The wound continues to bleed. And in the morning, my father is here with me now. He's walking down the hallway and the door to my bedroom was open, and he gets a shock. He looks in, and he didn't know if I um, was actually alive. Of course, the wound had uh, continued to bleed, and my T-shirt, which I had worn the bed that night, was white, and it was uh, two-thirds of the shirt was um, completely uh, red, and it was a shocking scene. My father's raced into me, and my mother was alerted, um, my dad actually yelled out in shock and i was alive you know much to you know their appreciation but they had to help me out of bed get me to the shower get the shirt off me and clean the blood that congealed on my uh, chest and this was horrific for them to see their son to go through and um, my father he's he's uh, said you know son i don't take many photographs but i couldn't explain what you're going through that's why these photographs and send it um, you know, to some family members. And um, and this is one. So I'll explain the procedure when I'm speaking and then I'll show mum holding up the T-shirt. It was just horrific. And this is what I was going through, but people didn't see it. After a couple of um, you know, weeks, the swelling go down and I'm still dealing with the healing phase. And to come back to my original point, a colleague um, who, who saw how long it took to come back to work he uh, said, "I, oh, yeah, I thought you were weak, but I'm having some uh, problems of my own. Now, this is, you know, probably a good, you know, uh, four, or five years after the event. But to his credit, uh, he he said, I thought you were weak, not taking so long to come back from some of the things I've been involved in. I'm now suffering some mental health injury, um, mental health uh, issues, and uh, I just want to apologise. And I really appreciate him sharing that." But it's people making those snap judgments just looking on the surface and they saw, you know, I'm missing a few teeth and I have 20 months off work.
1: Yeah, it doesn't kind of take people – sometimes it takes people to go through similar things to to realise what you've been through or what it's like to have, like, mental health issues or to see you actually physically see you go through what you've been through to actually realise because otherwise people just make judgments, as you said.
0: Yeah, and I think just to to jump in, I think, that you know, I mean, as you said, as you both said, the talking about it is so important, you know, I mean, often people will have, you know, I think it's especially true of men, I'm not suggesting women don't also do this, but I think people can have, you know, suicidal ideation and won't tell anyone, perhaps they're worried, it's going to bring in some shame, they're going to feel vulnerable, and I think when that happens, you know, often the suicidal ideation will grow they'll keep thinking about it, they'll keep thinking about it, they'll keep thinking about it, you know, and the likelihood, I think, of them, you know, ending their life, I think, increases, whereas talking to someone, and just as you say, it doesn't have to be a professional, talking to a family member, talking to a friend, talking to somebody who's been through a similar experience, it it can, you know, often drain the energy out of the suicidal ideation, Mm -hmm. you know, especially if the other person has had similar experiences and, you know, can have empathy and, you know, I think when it when it, it's just internalized, I think often that's, you know, it's the most dangerous. And I kind of wanted to ask you, you talked about hope earlier, Dale. I mean, what would you say to people? I mean, if there are people listening now that feel that, that there is no hope, you know, for the future and perhaps might be contemplating, you know, a, a way out through suicide, what, what would you say to them?
2: You you may not see it now and it may not be uh, an easy road at all uh, but by uh, working hard, working hard on your own mental health, being brave, reaching out to help, setting yourself goals. You can have small goals just for the day, which I did when I was suffering depression and very simple list. Get out of bed, make the bed, you know, make a morning coffee, check my email. By um, working hard on the small things like that uh, and you'll be able to um, you know, create that hope in that light at the end of the tunnel and have um, those great experiences or, or achieve those you know, milestones in your life that you really want to achieve. Like, I, I love I love skiing. It's one of the highlights in my life and you know, COVID got us uh, a lot of people down and uh, I, I understand so much that I, that I want to do and cannot do. But I know I will once again in... Maybe a couple of years ago, I'll be seeing and I will enjoy it more than I ever would. So by by, by working hard, and you know, sitting there and doing nothing is not going to create that hope. But by working hard, you can create that hope. And it might be as simple as asking for help. It can be you know making that list for yourself to you know, help you get off your backside and. Uh, Work and do things and help you know set some even some larger goals. Like, I want to change my de- my, my um, career, so I'm going to uh, in, uh, make some sacrifices and enroll in a new degree.
0: Yeah, to yeah. I me, mean, it's a great message. And you know, your films and you know, all of the information you've put out, you know, you, you must have helped so many. I mean, you continue to help so many people i mean I, I know we're almost running out of time but i really wanted to ask you there about your, your really important work for lifeline and being lifeline ambassador
2: hey it's a, it's a it's a great honor and how that came about was that um i was speaking to police recruits and uh, this is one of the there's an amazing man, um, Inspector Dave Stevenson. I was at the academy two thousand six. Nobody wanted to speak to me about the shooting. So I've got a you know, my long commute, you know, to the academy and back. Eight hours work, study on the weeknights. and nice. uh, weekends, and uh, and I wasn't having much of a uh, of, of a life. Uh, and then an officer who I worked with, he. Uh, thought that I might have some value to speak to these police recruits about. So they went to my manager and she was afraid. It's like, oh, you know, it's shooting It's kind of weird. We don't speak about that. So they went to the inspector who, when I first saw him, I described him just as a big bear of a man. He said, why don't we ask Darrell, let's empower them. I was asked, and this was 2006. I didn't want it to be a war story. And so I uh, had four lessons for them. I played the audio and I drew on the diagram on the whiteboard. But the an important thing was this uh, person, uh, this inspector. He said, um, running across a path at the academy, he said, "Hey, Greenie, I hear you're going to speak to the recruits in the shooting. Why oh, do I come along, sit in, and listen? Might help me be a better boss for you." And so I, uh, that was my first time speaking on the shooting, and I speak a lot about this amazing leader, Dave, Dave Stevenson, um, what he did. But what this did by this first speaking to the recruits. This led another friend of mine to introduce me uh, to one of his uh, friends uh, who was a business associate. He was in finance, Joel Palmer, and he had breakfasts for his clients. And he actually had a, um, a coach come along and, and to review it and give him tips. Joel saw what I was doing and he saw that it was PowerPoint. It was, you know, death by words and numbers and numeral. Introduced me to Mike at a, at a function, didn't tell me about it. And I explained a bit of my, about my background and he thought to himself, wow, uh, that's an, a pretty amazing story. He said, I knew I couldn't afford my fees, um, but he volunteered his time, coached me in speaking, introduced me to Professional Speakers Australia. And then I uh, known him being a member of you know, a couple of months. This Hansen came along and he made uh, films, highly professional films, as you see from his work. Afterwards, I chased him down the car park and and I, I explained a little bit about my shooting and, and he thought that was wow. He went on with me to make that six-minute film dedicated to suicide uh, prevention mm-hmm. and Coffin, Coffin said that is very, very powerful. We actually have a uh, table at a Lifeline function in Sydney to raise um, funds for Lifeline. Laurie Oates was one of the speakers. So I was offered a seat at this table I flew down. I was introduced to the chairman, who then introduced me to the CEO. They, you know, saw the power in that film. They wrote to the police minister in, in Queensland and asked to put on an event, and that saw the uh, launch of this uh, film in two thousand and eighteen. Uh, and plans for Lifeline, and I was announced as an ambassador. Oh, nice. And my work still continues to this day. And I was just with them recently at BookFest here in Brisbane and uh, raising awareness of BookFest. And uh, every dollar that, we, that was spent at BookFest went to them helping answering all those extra uh, calls that are coming in now with people who are distressed uh, due to COVID and, and, and the normal run of events. But there's extra pressure on, on Lifeline now.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us today, Daryl. We really appreciate it. And I know it's quite a sensitive topic to share with anyone, but um, your story will help others hopefully speak up and get the help they need, um, as we always want to do with this podcast. Um, and thank you, Michael, for help- helping host again. Um, no we'll no sh- problem. Um, Daryl, sh- if you send your link through, we will share them on our social media pages and... Um, you guys can check out Daryl's film on YouTube and uh, his website, which we will share. Um, well, Thank you again. Um,
2: it's been an absolute pleasure, uh, gentlemen, and um, thank you for your efforts, you know, for raising awareness about this sensitive topic. It's a lot of... Because a lot of the times, they don't want to mention it. It's even in the media. they say, oh, there's been an incident. They don't want to mention it's actually been a suicide because they're afraid they're going to plant the idea. And uh, I don't believe that whatsoever. You know, people um, they get so desperate when you go through such tough times that just comes to their mind. And thinking, you know, that's uh, that's old school thinking. Not 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 to mention it. I'm not talking about meth or so forth, but to be to make it more widely aware that you know what, what's going on. They're happy to say, you know, there was a fatal car accident. Three people died," right? but there'll be, "Oh, there was an incident on the highway." They won't mention that, unfortunately, somebody, you know, there's a delay on the highway. Unfortunately, somebody today decided to take their life. And um, I think more open and honest will um, uh, help re- help um, reduce those figures, you know, to uh, hope, hopefully, uh, as Lifeline Goal is, to a uh, suicide-free Australia.
0: Yeah. yeah, and can I just just before we finish, I just wanted again to thank you so much for sharing your story. I mean, you're an absolute inspiration, Daryl. I mean, that's all I can say, really. So thank you. You know, I mean, your your work, you know, must have helped and continues to help so many people. So really appreciate you doing this podcast for us.
2: Um, uh, again, my pleasure. People reached out and helped me in the darkest of times. It's my turn to help give back.
1: Thank you very much, Um, and thank you to everyone for listening. Just remember, as Daryl said, there's always someone to talk to if you are in despair or you need someone to chat to about anything. Do reach out. Thank you for listening. Bye, everyone.
0: Okay,
1: goodbye.
2: Thanks, Daryl. Thanks, Jai.
1: Thanks, Mark. If you or anyone you know has been affected by the topics discussed in today's episode or previous episodes, please contact your local or countries helpline, you'll find them by going to Google and typing in helpline. Um, they have Samaritan suicide helpline, but remember that you're not alone as the title of the podcast says. Um, there are many other people like you that have got mental health issues and feel suicidal and feel alone, but there's always someone there for you to talk to, be it a friend, a family member, a stranger a psychotherapist or doctor, there's someone to talk to. I've been in that position before and talking to someone really does help. It's okay to not be okay. And I will see you in the next episode. If you're interested in being a guest in any future episodes, um, please contact me via multimedia at gmail.com or contact me on Facebook. Um, We are doing an episode on suicide men uh, and mental health and then we we'll are do one on empaths just any topics you'd like to be covered please let me know also at the email as i mentioned before um thanks again to those that have tuned in and made the pop the podcast as popular as it is